From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. When he gets the nomination, he becomes far more powerful. When all of the Republicans become loyal to him and the media, and he gets the money uh, for that run, then his policy pronouncements and his vindictiveness and his willingness to go after Biden and those around him will also grow exponentially. That's Ian Bremmer. He's the founder and president of Eurasia Group, a political risk consulting firm, and the founder of the associated digital media company, G Zero Media. Every year, Eurasia Group puts out a report of the top risks facing the world in the coming 52 weeks. And usually, I have Ian on to break down the threat assessment. This year, the U.S. election looms large, as do the ongoing crises in the Middle East, the prospect of an axis of rogues, and the risks of ungoverned artificial intelligence. Ian tells me what to be scared of in 2024, and somehow we even manage to laugh while we confront the specter of these risks. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care, and with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes from Twitter user Eric Adair, or I guess ex-user Eric Adair, who asks, In Judge Chutkin's case, has DOJ violated the stay by continuing to provide discovery and file motions, provided that the defense team is not obligated to review the discovery or respond to the motions while the stay remains in effect? Well, that's a very good question, and it's playing out sort of interestingly in the D.C. courthouse. As you may recall, Judge Chutkin is overseeing the January 6th-related indictment brought by Special Counsel Jack Smith. And at the moment, there is a legal wrangle that's going on that we've talked about many times relating to whether or not former President Trump has a sort of absolute immunity in connection with the things he did in the lead-up to January 6th. And while that appeal has been taking place in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals and perhaps potentially eventually to the Supreme Court, all proceedings in the district court, the trial court under Judge Chutkin, have been stayed meaning paused, and she's divested of jurisdiction. Now, what's operating in this case and all the other cases in the lead up to the election here in 2024 are not just legal principles and legal precedents, but also something very, very important for a practical reason, and that is the clock. And prosecutors in Jack Smith's office 
and in the other prosecutors' offices, understand that there is a risk if these trials don't take place in a timely fashion before the election, which could cause the return of Donald Trump to the White House, these trials may never happen for reasons that we've discussed before. So they are trying mightily in every way possible without violating any order, without violating any stay, to keep on track. Because as Judge Shutkin has said, the deadlines are merely paused and they may resume. And so Jack Smith's prosecutors are, I think, in good faith and understandably trying to make sure that if the case gets back on track and the decision is made by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals or the Supreme Court that Donald Trump loses in his arguments to dismiss the indictment, they can speedily get back on track to have this trial, which is set for March 4th. Now, March 4th, as I've said before, is a bit ambitious, given these appeals that are going on. But I think it makes sense for the Jack Smith team to do everything possible to try to keep it on schedule, notwithstanding this pause. What's interesting to me is the Trump team, in probably the most direct signal that all they care about also is the clock, rather than principal legal argument, has filed a motion to hold Jack Smith in contempt. Why? For filing motions ahead of deadlines and providing discovery ahead of deadlines. Even though, as you point out in the base of your question, that there is no obligation on the part of Donald Trump's team to respond to the motions or to read the discovery or to review the discovery. In my time as a prosecutor and overseeing cases, there were many times where defense lawyers would complain that they're not getting discovery quickly enough. There are many times they claimed that they were not getting notice of what arguments the prosecution was planning to make in motions or otherwise quickly enough. It is a bit bit odd and unprecedented in my experience for the complaint to be that they're getting discovery and information and notice of arguments and motions in advance of deadlines. I don't see any way that that's prejudicial to them in a real meaningful legal sense, and I expect Judge Chutkin to agree with that. This question comes in a post from ex-user J.L. Sherman, who asks, I think quite poignantly, why did the OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel, draft a memo prohibiting the federal indictment of a sitting president if presidents have immunity for the criminal official acts? Well, that's a great question. And you get to a great point. To just put this in context for folks, this relates to the prior question. There's an ongoing legal battle on whether or not former President Trump had absolute immunity for basically everything he did while he was in office, if there's an argument that it was an official act. Now, Jack Smith and his team and the government and most legal experts are putting forth the argument that there's nothing in the text, structure, or history of the Constitution that says a president, when he leaves office, is immune in the way that Donald Trump has advocated and his lawyers have argued. Your question gets at another set of arguments, which is, essentially, as far back as we can remember, everyone has been under the assumption that presidents, when they're out of office, when they're no longer serving, and they're private citizens, are subject to criminal prosecution for certain misconduct that they engaged in while they were present. That has been what everyone has assumed. That's why your question is a good one. Why on earth did OLC, the Office of Legal Counsel within the Justice Department, on more than one occasion, make the effort to set forth a principle that a sitting president can't be indicted if it was the case that he couldn't be indicted after he was president too, right? Doesn't make any sense. It's not logical. It's been the assumption and the understanding of both Democratic and Republican administrations that people are subject to prosecution once they leave the Oval Office. I'll give you another example of this. It's been brought up in the briefs and also by legal experts, and I think it's, it's a related point to this issue of the drafting of the OLC opinion. And that is, very famously, back in the 70s, President Gerald Ford issued a pardon to Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon accepted the pardon. If it's the case, as Trump argues now, that former presidents have sweeping absolute immunity based on the things they did when they were in office, 
There was no need for the pardon to have issued, and there was no need for the pardon to have been accepted. Now, a footnote to that is, the Trump legal team in recent days has made the argument, well, that was different. That was not official conduct. What Nixon was accused of doing and what he was pardoned for, that was unlawful campaign activity. Sound familiar? Much of what is being alleged about Donald Trump is also exactly that, unlawful campaign activity in an attempt to overturn an election. So the argument goes. I'm generally loath to make predictions about how courts will rule on various things, particularly things that are cases of first impression, even though the weight of evidence and legal reasoning is on one side rather than the other. But I do think that the argument this week did not go well for President Trump's lawyers on this issue of absolute immunity, and that the circuit court, the panel of three, will rule against him. This question comes in an email from Mr. Wind, who writes, Preet, if SCOTUS takes up the question of Colorado's or Maine's precluding Trump's access to be on the state's primary or general election ballots, then were the justices to overturn such decisions, depending upon the wording of the justice's decision or order, would the implication necessarily be that Trump did not engage in insurrection? What effect might that have on the cases brought by Jack Smith or Fonnie Willis? Thank you. Well, that's a great question. Since you've written the question, I don't know exactly when you sent the question in, but the Supreme Court has now said it is definitely taking up the matter of Colorado and Maine's precluding Trump's access to the state's ballots in 2024. And you are correct that most of the focus on this question is on certain language in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that refers to insurrection. So, for example, no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress and various other offices, as set forth in Section 3, who shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. So that's where the focus is. That could very well be the way in which the Supreme Court makes its decision about whether or not Donald Trump can be disqualified from the ballot in those states or other states. But it's not the only way. And Joyce Vance and I discussed this on the Cafe Insider at some length this week. There are various other arguments that are being made that could be what some people call off-ramps for the Supreme Court or a majority of the Supreme Court to decide that he can't be disqualified that don't have to do with this language relating to insurrection or whether or not he engaged in insurrection. So, for example, an argument has been raised that notwithstanding the language of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that the courts don't actually have the authority to be the enforcement mechanism for disqualifying someone from being on the ballot, that that must be done by Congress. That's a technical procedural argument. So a court could decide that's the basis for siding with Donald Trump on the disqualification issue. There's another one that's sort of interesting that's gotten a bit of attention, and that is the question of whether or not Section 3 of the 14th Amendment even applies to the person who is seeking to be president of the United States. I read a portion of Section 3 to you a second ago. It makes references to senators, representatives, electors, members of any state legislature, executive or judicial officers of any state, but it sort of pointedly, in the minds of some people who are making this argument, it pointedly doesn't refer to the president of the United States. So, so there's an argument or a subset of an argument that the section doesn't even apply to the president. That, of course, also doesn't get to the issue of whether or not there was an insurrection or whether or not Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. It would again be sort of a procedural point. And in fact, the trial court in Colorado agreed that every element of section three was met with respect to Donald Trump being able to be disqualified. But for this one, the issue of whether or not it applies to the president of the United States. The Colorado Supreme Court, in a split decision, four to three, effectively said that would make no sense. There's some constitutional history that addresses this point, and more sort of commonsensically, it would be odd for the disqualification to apply to every single person who could run for office in the U.S., except for the most important one. That makes no sense at all. So it is possible that the Supreme Court makes its decision directly on the ground that they believe 
the insurrection language is not satisfied, but there are these other ways they could decide it as well. As for your question about what effect that might have on the cases brought by Jack Smith or Fannie Willis, I don't think really any. The Supreme Court case is based on this ballot issue, not on the criminal issues. And by the way, as you may appreciate at this point, in Jack Smith's case, even though there is a statute on the books that's called insurrection, Jack Smith is not charged and the grand jury has not charged Donald Trump with insurrection. So a ruling from the Supreme Court on the Colorado ballot issue, I don't think has a bearing on Jack Smith's criminal case. I'll be right back with my conversation with Ian Bremmer. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then passed those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. Ian Bremmer is an expert on geopolitical risk, and he has a whole lot of predictions about this high-intensity year. Ian Bremmer, my friend, welcome back to the show. Treat, I have missed you so much over the last <laughs> few weeks. Happy 2024. Yes, indeed. It has been reported to me by my crack staff that this is, in fact, your 13th appearance in some form or another on the podcast. Can that be right? Uh, lucky 13. Oh, we're going to absolutely... 13th the charm, as they yeah, say. Absolutely. Wow, that's a lot. For new listeners, you should know that I, I call you my Regis Philbin. 
I have people that now write me saying, when are you going back on Preet? I mean, <laughs> as been if a like, week. I have some level of commitment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, Regis like, yeah. Philbin, for, for the young folks, was the most uh, frequent guest on the David Letterman show, uh, the original show, I believe, Late Night with David Letterman. Anyway, so we're here every year for you to depress us with your top risks of the year. You put out this report, which is you know very thoughtful and very smart, some of which I will take some um, issue with. Fair warning, as I do every year. And you, do, you do every year. I do every year. But before we get to that, I, I thought it'd be fascinating to hear, because I haven't spoken to you since you went on this somewhat unusual and rare Christmas time trip. You did not go to the warmth, did you? I did not. I mean You were not in the you were not in the Caribbean. <laughs> what would be the opposite of that? I guess the opposite of that would be Space. Deep space would no, be the opposite you didn't of that. Go to deep space. You no, went to I Antarctica. Didn't. I had I went to the South Pole. I did. So I so you had told me that you had planned a trip to the actual South Pole, but it wasn't a guarantee that weather conditions would permit it. Did you actually yep. make it to the South Pole? I did actually make it. And I'll tell you that, you know, the worst thing about uh, being uh, that far south, uh, and I don't care how much it is summer there, it is bad, is going to the bathroom. Right. It is, no, in the middle of the night. You had to lead with, you couldn't lead with, you know, some of the other amazing things you so saw. so cold. It or experienced. You got so cold. No, it, it was, this was an adventure. It was, um, there was a lot of mountaineering and rock climbing and ice climbing. And uh, and and I had people that really know how to do that. Um, which you delegated it, that? <laughs> <laughs> Well, no, but I was when you roped. Say I had people who knew how I was, to do that. I was roped to that so that when I screwed up, it was much less likely I was going to cause grievous injury to myself. So, so that was is important. there a Four Seasons down there? Like, what's the yeah, yeah? No, there's there's no infrastructure. There's no permanent infrastructure other than uh, the science bases that are there, the research bases. So, I mean, some of so it, that's where you slept. No, no. Although I did visit uh, a couple bases, and that was great and super interesting, including the Amer American base, which is the only base on the South Pole, um, and spent a bunch of time down there talking to them about like some of the science experiments they're doing and the weather they focus on, the satellite systems, all that kind. Of. It's really cool. Where did you uh, sleep? Uh, I said, well, that that when I was down in the pole, I slept in a tent. Uh, in a little makeshift camp that was isolated and not like where you and I usually sleep. Um, but the base camp, which they set up for the Antarctic summer, that was actually perfectly comfortable. And what's the prevailing temperature during the day and at night? Uh, th th there were a few days where I was actually taking layers off, given all the exercise. Uh, it, it got up to negative five. and Up to negative five. Uh, and occasionally no wind. So, I mean, think Chicago on a nice day in January, right? Uh, but there were... There were times uh, when it was down to about negative 30, negative 35. And on top of one of the mountains um, that we climbed, the winds were 60, 70 miles an hour. And that was that was absolutely brutal. That was, uh, I've never experienced anything like that in my life. One of the Norwegians on the trip said that there is no such thing as cold weather, only bad clothing. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and, and I I do beg to differ with that after this trip. And do I understand correctly that you you paid money to go on this trip? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it does cost to get there, but but I, I look. I think they a total of five hundred people that go to the pole every year, and and they are uh, they are not tourists, most of them. So it was. I mean, you know, I've been all over the world. I've traveled to most places. I've never been to this massive continent with almost no people on it. 
So one, I just, there was a, a, a human curiosity to it, but also, um, and this is pretty interesting, this Antarctica is the first Cold War arms agreement that was, that was structured. Um, where the Americans and the Soviets back in 1959 agreed not to do, not to militarize uh, the the Antarctica, any of the continent, or to exploit any resources there. And that treaty, which is pretty loosely written, has held up now for over 60 years. And the next uh, time the treaty has to be uh, approved is in 2048. And there is uh, uh, there's no reason uh, why it's there are going to be any challenges to it before then? So I mean, this is actually a part of the world that that we govern pretty well because there's no people. It helps that there's no and people. And it's frigid. And it's frigid. <laughs> that's the best we can do. Okay, so that that's very interesting. I hope to hear more about your trip offline. Yeah. So let's remind folks who haven't heard this annual episode of the podcast. You do this assessment of risk, geopolitical and other risk. Why do you do this? Well, one, it's really to talk about what we are expecting for the world in the coming year. So, you know, it's back to school, it's January, you're kicking off the year, and what do we think, how do we think about the world? And there are lots of ways to do that. We do it um, by looking at all of the top risks, which we rate on the basis of likelihood, imminence, and impact. And the whole organization uh, spends, and we've got about 250 people here, and we spend a lot of brain power over the couple of months before the end of the year putting it together. Um, and we also look at red herring. So the things that people think are likely to be risks that we think are not going to be risks. So a little optimism, uh, a little hope at the bottom of the lamp. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, uh, at the end of the year, we keep it on our website all year. And then we end the year, we go back and we see how we did. And it's actually, it's quite a useful disciplining device yeah. for the whole organization and for the public that should be trying to keep us uh, keep us honest about this. And thing. for this podcast, let's let's start with that. Yep. You were on the show almost exactly a year ago to talk about the top risks. How'd you do? What do you think, Preet? I think not bad. I think not bad. I mean, some of these things appear again and again. I will note that last year, and you have interesting titles for the various risks, and you had what I thought was low on the list, Divided States of America. Mm -hmm. Last year was number eight. Yep. And a version of that, I take it, this year is number one. Absolutely. And you call it this year, um, as compared to Divided States of America, you call it the United States versus itself. So it's gone up in the, rank <laughs> in the rankings. And this is an issue that I talk about every single week on one or more of the podcasts. Yeah. It's gone up seven spots to number one. There are some things that I think were sort of um, expected. Uh, China, you had a you had a, a version of the China risk at number two. Can we last just can year. we just go to number eight? Up? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, so I number mean, eight. I, this is number eight from last year. Divided States of America from last year. Yeah, I mean, I I do think. Look, at the end of the day, um, it was not an election year. People thought that the U.S. political system was going to be on pause as a risk. I didn't think that that was appropriate. I think we saw that play out specifically with the drama in the House of Representatives, uh, where we didn't have uh, a speaker for a period of time. And now, of course, it's much weaker as a check and a balance. Um, but I think we would have been very badly served by trying to put the United States towards the top because that risk just did not play out in a major way over the course of 2023. As a technical matter, 
if the the um the beginning point is January 1, 2023 right. and the end point is 12/31/2023, I suppose that's right. Um because all the action, I mean 2023 is prelude in part to the possible catastrophes of 2024. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Electoral and otherwise. So so you asked me what I thought, so I gave you my answer. How do you think you did? Yeah, I think we did pretty well. Uh, I think that the biggest misses, I'll start with the misses, um, were- um, Always start with the misses. We're on the econ- Always start with the misses. Preach. Um, the, uh, the, that's, that's pretty good. That's a good pun. Yeah. Um, were the two that had the sort of a geoeconomic flavor, the inflation shock waves, which were less of a short-term spike and more um, a longer um, challenge that's going to play out over the coming year and years as well. So I think we overstated it last year. You had it and at number the, four. You had inflation shock waves at number four. Should have been a little lower, especially given how well the U.S. economy rebounded in 2023. Um, and the energy crunch where we would have thought at the beginning of 23 that oil prices would probably have broken $100 by the second half of the year, especially given all the geopolitical challenges. Then add the Middle East to that, which you know no one predicted the Middle East war uh, between Israel and Hamas, uh, that happened. And still, um, we didn't see prices hit 100. Um, and part of that was because the U.S. overproduced uh, pretty dramatically. And also that agreement with the Venezuelans uh, was was uh, a little bit of a su- surprise, helping them to produce a little more by the end of the year. The rest of the report, all the other top 10 risks, I feel very good about. Particularly, I think we hit really hard this idea that China was going to surprise in underperformance, in part because of Xi Jinping's consolidation of political power and unwillingness to um, to countenance internal debate um, in challenging his incrementalism, challenging his focus um, on politics and security and stability first and not dealing with a big challenge on the back of zero COVID. Um, also, the obvious one, which you know I've spent a lot of my life focusing on, rogue Russia, I, I don't think it's a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise that that war uh, continued um, and did not go super well for the West over the course of 12 months, but that's where we are. And we certainly thought that was gonna be the case back in 23. Remind me, did you take a position last year on the likelihood of a recession in 2023? No, no, we didn't. So that was wise. Did you just um, not wanna play or you didn't think it was a likelihood? Uh, well, uh, we're not economists at the end of the day. Well, so I'd rather leave the economy that. a bunch. We you do, talk about but, inflation. We, but we talk more about that in terms of how the political actors are going to affect these things. So, Right, we, but a recession, fact, yeah. A, would have been affected by political actors and B, would have affected political actors no, in no, the other direction as I well. I I'm, so so that, I'm, that, trying, I'm trying to have yeah. you explain why you copped out on the recession issue. Copped out on the recession issue because I, I don't feel like we had a very strong call uh, certainly nothing that made us feel counter consensus. So I don't think you would have learned a lot from us if we had opined on it. And that's a good reason not to say much. Well, that's a win, right? Because you didn't yeah. you didn't predict wrong. And lots and lots of people, people that you and I both know, felt very strongly that a recession was all but inevitable. Look, I think if you look back on the last 25, 26 years since I started the company, one of the things we've been very effective at is not talking about stuff that we just don't have expertise on. Um, I, I think it's a very important thing to do. Is that why George Santos is not on the list? He should be um, because, you know. <laughs> he's a major risk. He's, you know, he's. A, he's well, he's, he actually, fall, you know, kidding aside, he falls within number one. Of course he does. Of he course falls he does. within number one. So let's talk about this. He strongly list. falls within number one. Yeah. And, and so, so, yeah. so, so you have a, you know, a clever name for the first risk. And it's probably the risk that I spend the most time thinking about and talking about. 
The United States versus itself. What does that mean? Um, well, the other clever piece of it is that we say that there are three major wars going on yes. in the world today. Russia versus Ukraine in its third year, Israel versus Hamas now in its third month, and the United States versus, versus itself. itself. And of course, it's not a hot war. Um, it's a cold war. Um, but you know, there are a lot of things that describe the principal actors, the adversaries, who see each other as existential threats to the other um, and are fighting without any agreement on what the basic set of facts are. And also, um, there's no prospect that diplomacy is going to fix this. And when you look at it that way, you go, oh my God, you're right, that the United States really is in that environment. Um, and, and we are in danger, perpetual danger of normalizing all of these things that have happened and are still happening in the U.S. political system that are unprecedented. And George Santos is one and most things involving Trump are another. Um, the breaking of impeachment as a political check on the presidency, um, the, uh, the inability of a House speaker to exert authority uh, over his own party. I mean, all of these things are getting, they are eroding. The institutions are getting weaker. American trust in these institutions is breaking down. Um, you probably saw in the graphic, we looked at uh, the way that people, uh, people's confidence in at things from the Supreme Court to Congress, to the presidency, to public schools, to newspapers, to television news, to news on the internet, to the church and organized religion. It's all down. Every one of those, they are down radically and dramatically and near continuously through 2023. Uh, this is not a sustainable trajectory. The United States today in 2024 is a democracy in crisis. And by the way, it's the only G7 democracy that is in crisis. And that that's, I think that that is that's wildly- an unusual dynamic, yeah. unique. It's unique in the last 50, 60, 70 years? It's unique. It's wildly underappreciated by a bunch of people that have just gotten used to how much worse it's gotten. Can I challenge you a little bit on how you characterize this first risk? Yeah, sure. And maybe this is in the spirit of not- appearing or trying to appear too partisan, but isn't risk number one, the chance that Trump gets a second term? Not by itself, no. Why do you say that? Let me phrase it a different way and you can answer either version of the question. If Biden wins decisively and in a way that, I mean, this may be unlikely to unfold this way, but if Biden wins decisively and remains relatively healthy, my guess is that the American risk, political risk, will go down for next year. And if Trump wins, it will stay at the top or near the top. And it'll get worse. And it'll get worse. So, so isn't, that, isn't that a way of indicating my characterization that what, what's really the risk is the Trump re-election possibility? No. Okay, explain. <laughs> okay. So, well, first of all, you, you're, you're, you caveated that twice. You said, if Biden wins in a really big way, and then you, you know, the health issue. But the, he would have to win in a very big and decisive way. Uh, winning uh, in a small way that is clearly seen as unacceptable um, and false and fake um, by you know nearly half of the population continues that risk. Remember, Biden has been president for the last four years. And over that period of time, Biden has certainly been willing to play by, you know, by and large, the rules of law. 
in the United States. And he certainly wants to have a more stable America. Uh, and yet the United States, its political institutions have actually deteriorated while Biden has been president. Um, and uh, belief and trust in those institutions has weakened while Biden has been president. There are a lot of reasons for that. But at some point you have to say, well, Biden just clearly doesn't have the capacity to resolve this challenge. So if that's true, a second Biden term from 82 to 86 years of age is highly unlikely to resolve what the first Biden term did not. Not least of which because the second time around, Trump is facing jail time and for for a series of, of crimes that he and his supporters completely do not accept that he's responsible for. Final point here is that this is 2024, not 2025. In 2024, Trump likely, overwhelmingly likely, gets the nomination. When he gets the nomination, he becomes far more powerful than he is now, than he was in 2023, which is a big part of this risk. When all of the Republicans become loyal to him and the media, and he gets the money uh, for that run, then his policy pronouncements and his vindictiveness and his willingness to go after Biden and those around him will also grow exponentially. I mean, I, I, I know the president a little bit, but I know the people around him a lot, as do you. And those people, a lot of them truly believe that if Trump becomes president, they will face legal jeopardy in the yeah. United States, right? And that's- I mean, Trump, Trump has an enemies list, although luckily for the Biden people, they're second in line after the disloyal Trump people. That's true. That's true. So I'm not going to have the IRS on my tail um, until you know later in the term. Well, he says he just needs to be dictated for one day. For so, one day. I mean, who knows? It might be in the, in, in, later in the afternoon for you, Preet. I mean, can, can we just – I've asked other guests this question. I've been thinking about it, and it's the proper year in which to think about it. From all of the expertise that you have, international, geopolitical, et cetera, can you just describe in a minute or two what the risks, so we're previewing a little bit, I know it's premature because of the calendar, but preview a little bit what Trump too would look like if he were to be back in the White House. I'll start with one. Likelihood of withdrawal from NATO is what? Not my biggest concern, but likelihood that NATO starts to fragment, I think is pretty high. If that's uh, not your big, like ordinarily in recent political and international history, the fragmenting of NATO would be at the top of anyone's list. Yeah. So is, that's a measure of how bad things will be, that that's not even close to the top? Oh, no, no, no. I was responding to your question saying, would the United States pull out of NATO? Oh, you think, I, you think the risk is not— It's less you describe, that. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so for example, we've got these two major wars that are going on right now internationally. Trump becoming president will have an impact on both of them. Trump says um, on, on the Middle East that if he was president, it wouldn't happen because the Iranians know what happened when he was president. He went and he ordered the assassination of Qasem Soleimani for transgressions that were a lot smaller than what the Iranians are presently supporting in the Middle East against the U.S. and its allies. Um, so the likelihood that the war in the Middle East would expand dramatically to include the U.S. against Iran, that risk goes way up. Trump becomes president. And, um, you know, you're now talking about global recession. You're talking about 150 minimum, minimum uh, dollar oil. 
um, not to mention the broader, you know, sort of security implications of uh, what will look like a religious war. And again, this is in the context of Trump talking about having patriotism tests, particularly for Muslims trying to come to the United States. I mean, all this kind of stuff. You can just imagine what that is going to look like um, as as you have far more radicalization. Um, of Muslims, especially against the United States in that environment all over the world. Um, so that would be one. A second would be his relationship with Zelensky, who he sees as corrupt and very uh, politically oppositional when he wanted Zelensky to investigate um, Biden and his son. Zelensky said no. So, I mean, Trump is going to throw Zelensky under the bus and won't provide military support. That makes it much more likely Putin will be able to take more land and perhaps overthrow Zelensky, which is a much bigger threat to Poland, to the Baltic states. So you don't need the U.S. to pull out of NATO for NATO to fragment. You need the United States to allow Ukraine to lose and the Poles and the Balts going batshit crazy while the Americans are saying, not our fight, and we're not gonna pay for that. Well, you see how that could how that could play out over just 12 months, never mind four years. So these are very, very serious concerns, right? So a Trump victory assures him the number one spot on your list next year? No, um, but I mean, you would certainly, look, the United States is the most powerful country in the world. And it's also presently a democracy in crisis facing an unprecedentedly problematic transfer of power that may not be seen as free or fair um, and may not be peaceful. And so, uh, in fact, uh, reasonably unlikely to be seen as free and fair and peaceful by substantial uh, numbers of American citizens, not just a small percentage. So uh, I think in that environment, um, the damage that comes from that is unlikely to you know, recede in virtually any circumstance next year. But if Trump wins, it's certainly, it's hard to imagine the US being not towards the top of the list. Now, we don't know what other things are going to bump. We don't know how much worse the Middle East war is going to get. We don't know uh, what the axis of rogues will look like. North Korea, Russia, Iran, working together, driving chaos on the international stage, not interested in stability of existing international order and institutions. Like there are a lot of things that look deeply problematic over this course of the year. And I, I'm not in a position to tell you come 2025, you know, is is Trump clearly number one in and of himself. But given his what his position would be and also given how powerful the U.S. is, um, you, you know, it, it ain't going to be back at number eight. That's pretty clear. Yeah. So that was a sort of preview of what happens if Trump wins and then his win is is accepted. Now let's presume that Biden wins, but the win is not by a landslide, yeah, which is the worry that you have. The particular question I have is, based on the people you've talked to and experts and your own thinking about it, the likelihood we will see significant violence and or a coup and or another insurrection, how likely? Well, there's, there's a small but not negligible risk this time around that there will be real interference with the actual election. Yeah. Um, cyber interference, violent interference, um, you know, organized, disorganized, lone wolf terrorist attacks, external, internal. That hasn't happened over the last two terms. This time around, especially if Trump thinks he's likely to lose, there is a lot more at stake for him. And there is a lot more opportunity for American adversaries to stir chaos. 
So I think that is a real risk. I don't know if it's 5% or 20%, but I think there's a there's a real challenge that the U.S. election may not come off the way it is supposed to um, in November. Uh, assuming that Biden, it does happen, it does come off, and Biden does win, but it is a relatively thin win. And that's the way most U.S. elections happen because, of course, there are only a small number of states that are actually in play with a relatively small number of voters. The likelihood that Trump then facing having lost, facing jail, uh, I mean, he is going to want to do everything in his power to gin up his supporters. Now, some of whom are in jail, uh, having the insurrectionists from January 6th, but many of whom are not. And he'll have tens of millions of people following him on on X and on, on uh, Truth Social um, that are going to be willing to listen to his call. And I think at a very minimum, um, that would lead to a number of red states that would have um, the kind of activity on the ground that we saw in Portland, Oregon a few years ago, you know, declaring local autonomy zones because they're not going to be governed by an illegitimate government. And that is, that, that's going to cause violence. I, I think it's very, it's almost impossible to imagine in that environment that you would have a free and fair, peaceful transition of power across the country. I don't think you'd have a January 6th event because I think that security forces in the U.S., would be prepared for that and would lock Washington, D.C. down. But I think across the country, you'd get a lot of that. I'll be right back with Ian after this. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more 
and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Let's talk about risk number two that you've already alluded to, which is um, not very clever, but I think descriptive. Middle East on the brink. Yeah, it's not very clever. You're right. Um, No, but you don't always need to be clever, Ian. I learned this. It took me a while to learn this. That I didn't need to be clever? Why did it take you so long to learn that? That one one need not always be clever. I I felt like you knew that about me when we first met, really. (laughs) It was kind of, it was right there. That's definitely true. Yeah. Um, You already talked about it, and we've had other people on the show to talk about how they think things are going to unfold and play out. Yeah, you and Freed had a good conversation. As we did. And and as we sit here, it's Tuesday, uh, January 9th, that we're recording this. And there's already been discussion of, I don't know exactly what these terms mean, but, you know, a, a some some discussion of a drawing down of forces in Gaza. From by, Gaza. By Israel. Yep. What, what do you make of that development? And what do you make of Netanyahu's position in all this? You know, what seems to be a little bit of a fraying of the patience of the United States with respect to the conduct of the war. How do you think it's going to play out over the next few months? And And if you want to speculate as to Best case scenario and worst case scenario, what do you think? I think it's really hard to, we'll have to be very smart and very lucky in order to keep the war contained mostly, almost entirely within the confines of Gaza as it is and has been for the last three months. I think that will be an incredibly fortunate outcome. It is probably better than best case. And and that's that's the problem here. There are too many ways for this to escalate. Uh, you're right that there is a, a, a drawdown, at least a limited drawdown, from uh, the troops that have been operating in the north of Gaza uh, back to Israel. Now, if I want to be negative about this, since this is top risk we're talking about, uh, is the Israeli war cabinet does not want to be fighting a two-front war at the same time. Uh, and if they are planning significant military action against Hezbollah in the north, they need to get some of those troops out of Gaza. And it does appear that that is what they are planning, that the Israeli war cabinet, not, so we're not just talking about Netanyahu, but the entire uh, uh, unity government uh, is seeing this war as an opportunity to ensure longer-term Israeli security vis-a-vis those organizations that do not recognize the right for Israel to exist. And that is not just Hamas, that is clearly also Hezbollah degrading their military capability, if not destroying them, and certainly pushing them back from the border area to a buffer that has been approved in a Security Council resolution, but was never actually enacted by Hezbollah. So um, that in addition to the assassinations of Hamas leadership and apparently Hezbollah leadership, at least some of it, makes it much more likely that that fight is going to open up. Then you've got the Houthis um, operating out of Yemen. Then you've got the Shia uh, militants, the proxies of Iran in Iraq and Syria. And you have the radicalization of tens and tens of millions of Muslims around the world on the back of all of this military activity some of whom will take violent action in their countries. So there's just too many ways for this to go really badly in my view, even if you were to wind down the war in Gaza and there are no indications that you're truly gonna wind that down at this point. What about the US? What are the scenarios in which, or the circumstances in which 
the U.S. can get drawn in in a in a real and more meaningful on the ground way, or is that exceedingly unlikely? No, it's possible. Uh, we're still a few steps from it. Uh, the next steps to watch would be if the Americans decide as the Houthis are ramping up their violence and the U.S. has warned them against it and it's accomplished nothing so far, the U.S. might decide, could easily decide to engage in uh, direct strikes against Houthi bases in Yemen. That would expand the war and involve the United States much more dramatically. If the Israelis attack Hezbollah in a meaningful way, the U.S. provision of intelligence support, military support for Israel makes it more likely that the American troops will be targeted more broadly. If the Israelis hit Iran or if the Iranians get involved directly because their proxies are getting hit harder and are less likely to be able to sustain themselves, that would also bring the Americans in. So we're still a few steps away from that, but it's absolutely plausible. And let's keep in mind um, the broader implications for the United States here. Number one, the U.S. is incredibly isolated in its support for Israel on the global stage, uh, far stronger than any of its core allies and strongly opposed by all of the global South. Secondly, Biden very vulnerable at home. A majority of Democrats um, in the United States are, have more support for the Palestinians than they do for the Israeli position. And Biden is on the other side of that as an avowedly pro-Zionist uh, president, vice president, senator for decades now. Not to mention the fact that if, so this is gonna affect his reelection. I mean, I, I am today, I don't have a high confidence on this call because we're 10 months out. But today, I, I would say that Trump is 60-40 likely to win. And and this absolutely Biden's 60-40, okay. I have to conclude the podcast at this moment now. Because it's too high or too low? <laughs> no, you just... I've been, I've been saying to people, which freaks out the people that you could imagine are in my friend group, when I say 47% Trump, which is unacceptably high. Yeah, it's unacceptably high. But, but still below 50? Yeah, and you're at 60. Are you psychologically, you just don't want to get beyond 50 or that's your actual analytic perspective? I think overall, I mean, what do I know, right? And we're 10 months out, as you say. Yeah, we're spitballing. Um, it's too, I have no confidence. Yeah. My view is that if nothing else dramatically changes, Biden has a slight advantage and that, you know, people will So if he doesn't come get to older, their senses. If he doesn't get older, for example, in the next 10 months, if you could just keep it, just freeze it right there. <laughs> or not ostensibly so. <laughs> so, so my operating premise is that Biden has a slight advantage and people will come to their senses and independents will vote for stability over chaos and, you know, the second tour of revenge. But I don't think it's much. So I come in at 47% in that very non-scientific manner. And I, I agree with that. And then I come on top of that and say that the United States is economically likely to have a tougher time this year around than, than the consensus, which seems very upbeat. And also um, that the geopolitical risks are likely to provide some surprises downside and that the Middle East war specifically plays into that. There's got to be a 20% chance that the U.S. and Iran are directly involved in military confrontation and that would lead to a recession. And, and you then say I think Biden so let's, Can you say that again? Because that's the headline. 20% chance that the U.S. and Iran have direct military action against each other? Yeah, some level of direct military action. I'm not talking about like a full-on war, but I'm saying like actual American military strikes against Iranian uh, targets and vice versa. Yeah, I think that's probably at least 20%. Can, can I ask you um, an ignorant question about that? Because it's not my area of expertise. Does, does Iran in any shape or form want that? No, no, they absolutely don't. And obviously the US does not want that. Correct. So this is one of those things that just 
happens in international relations and in the beginnings of conflict, it can just happen anyway. People don't want any of these major conflicts that are happening right now, right? Um, they're happening. Um, it's uh, it's really unfortunate. Well, I don't know. Hamas, didn't Hamas want it? Uh, well, I think Hamas, you know, for a very long time didn't want it. Um, and, and then and they- And Rush, look, when you have a belligerent and then a victim country, uh, unlike what we're talking about here with the US and Iran, where I think credibly we can say neither side really wants to be in armed conflict with each other. Russia wanted to be in armed conflict with Ukraine. And Hamas wanted to be in armed conflict with Israel, so it's not quite the same. R Russia wanted to be in armed conflict for a couple weeks with Ukraine yeah. and it, yeah, to be over true. and not have anyone else get involved, and that was a massive misjudgment. They did not want to be remotely close to where we are right now. And Hamas um, was, you know, small pot shots, but certainly not planning anything so massive. And then over the course of the past years, the Palestinian position became increasingly untenable and uh, Netanyahu took his eyes way off the ball. So in both cases, quite surprising to end up in a position that is really like suboptimal doesn't get you even close to saying where we are. And so, yeah, I do think that if we end up in a shooting war of any sort with the Iranians, that makes it very, very unlikely that Biden can win. Can I ask you to say again, the last name of Bibi, the prime minister of Israel? Netanyahu? Yeah, you say Netanyahu. I do, yeah. As opposed to Netanyahu. Is that wrong? I don't know. I just wondered, is it a political statement? Like, no. Not, who do you want to be the prime minister? Netanyahu. Netanyahu. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What I do know is uh. Netanyahu. <laughs> I noticed that yeah. for the first time. I, maybe I, I'm pronouncing, maybe it's pronounced Netanyahu, but- I always thought I thought I thought you were making I've heard a Netanyahu. subtle- it seems, Netanyahu seems a little bit nasal. It seems a little bit Well, it's like spelled N-E-T. Yeah. But we pronounce E's in so many different ways. I That's mean, Preet, Preet, for example, we don't say, you know, Pretnyahu. Preet We don't say that. We yeah, don't say Pretnyahu. We don't say Pretnyahu. We don't say Pretnyahu. Yeah, because that that's is. not anybody's name. <laughs> Thank God. Can you imagine? It'd be like a mashup of you. I would have to change and it. BB. You would, it'd be, would you'd be so different. It. Yeah. Yeah. Can we jump ahead? Because you've been talking about Iran and the connection here to risk number five. And you use this phrase already, and I wanted to ask you about it. So we had the axis of evil that was um, defined by George W. Bush. Who was in the axis of evil? Uh, that was Iraq, it was uh, Iran, and it was North Korea. All right, so now we have a substitute player in your axis of rogues, which doesn't sound quite as dangerous as the axis of evil. And you True. have North Korea, Iran, and instead of Iraq, you have Russia. Russia. Why, do you, why do you use that phrase? Is that your phrase or it's are you borrowing phrase. it? No, that's my phrase. So axis of rogues sounds like, you know, Falstaff in Shakespeare. Like, it doesn't sound that bad. What do, you, what do you mean to convey by that? Well, they're rogue states uh, in the way they are perceived um, by the West. Uh, they are pariahs. Uh, they are countries that you do not do business with. You maximally sanction. You do not consider them part of the established international order. You don't invite them to summits. You don't engage in active diplomacy. You don't recognize them diplomatically. And uh, these are states that as a consequence of that, uh, feel like they are not interested in playing by any of the rules of the international order, but instead want chaos. They want um, these uh, the Western countries to be undermined, to be divided, maybe even to be destroyed. And they're still interested, of course, uh, first and foremost, in making sure that, that their power is maximized and their survival is assured. 
What we have seen, two points that are relevant here. One is that um, they are working together and the Russians are getting uh, the, the limited military support from around the world that they presently get is coming from Iran, drones, and including building drone factories inside Russia and North Korea with massive amounts of artillery and ammunition. And the Russians are responding by providing them support in intelligence and technology and, and uh, trade and commodities and other things. And the fact that you have these three countries First of all, Russia is the most powerful rogue state by that definition we ever had. They've got 6,000 nuclear weapons. They've got a lot of energy production. They've got you know significant landmass and military, paramilitary and cyber capabilities. That's dangerous uh, if that's the way they're behaving, and, and it is. Um, and the fact that the Iranians and North Koreans now have an actor that is uh, of that level of chaotic impulse, providing them with diplomatic cover and economic support and technological expertise, that's a dangerous thing. Now, final point, China is not a member of this group. Uh, the Chinese uh, are certainly adversaries of the United States and they have very different values, political and economic system, but they don't want America to fail. They understand that they need the existing international system to maintain its stability in order to do well themselves. Right, that's good, right? That's good. Uh, but they do, uh, they don't mind having the Russians and the Iranians and North Koreans having a level of political cover for what they do. And so the, China, the reality is that China's actions have facilitated uh, the strengthening of this, the creation and the strengthening of this axis to a degree. So that's what we're looking at. Can we talk about Ukraine quickly? Yeah. And you basically are saying we have to get used to the idea of a partitioned Ukraine. That's actually the, the title of risk number three, partitioned Ukraine. Yeah, it's super depressing. Yeah. So how do we, you know, you were one of our first guests after that invasion happened, coming up on the two-year anniversary of that. How surprising is it to you that we're at this point? Or once it was the case that Russia didn't succeed in a, in a you know, three-day or a two-week takeover of the country... All bets were off in either direction. I think that it was, um, that definitely all bets were off. It was clear very early on that this was going to be a war that was going to last for a long time and it was going to change the geopolitical order. I remember that conversation you and I had when I said that the peace dividend is over. Yeah. It's over. Um, and that Russia will be isolated um, for the foreseeable future, certainly as long as Putin is there. And there were no challenges, domestic challenges to Putin. The Prigozhin weekend was an interesting punt, uh, but ultimately there were no defectors among oligarchs or ministers or, or generals uh, against Putin, and he's in a perfectly stable position inside Russia. So uh, we're now, here we are, 2024, and Ukraine is uh, having a hard time maintaining existing levels of military support from the U.S. They had a failed counteroffensive over the last six months. 20%, nearly 20% of the territory is occupied by the Russians. The Ukrainians have no plausible way to take more of it back. And they're, they're, they're running out of ability to fight in terms of manpower. You know, back in 2022, the average age of a new Ukrainian recruit was 26. Today, it's about 45. Yeah. They've only got 44 million people. So, I mean, their ability to continue to fight is limited and that's going to make Zelensky more desperate. It's going to um, strain uh, the transatlantic relationship. I think last year we were at peak NATO and even without talking about Trump coming back, 
they're going to be it's going to be a lot harder to maintain a strong consensus position among these allies as the war gets worse. Do you think that Zelensky, I think the answer is probably yes with respect to Putin in a different sense. How closely are they looking at the ticking clock with respect to the U.S. election and the possible return of Trump? How do you think that is or should be playing into the strategy of either Zelensky or Putin in trying to accomplish or resolve certain things before that happens? Uh, I think if you're Putin, you're looking at it um, very clearly and strategically that this is a potentially a massive win for you. Yeah, you, you just need to get to then. And I don't think you have to concede anything until you find Nothing. out if your ally is going to be back in the White House, right? No reason to concede a damn thing right. until you find out if your ally is coming back to the White House. So what if you're Zelensky? Um, if you're Zelensky, I think you're having a hard time looking forward a year right now. Um, yeah. I, I think that uh, it's your, the time time frame is how do I just keep this fight going? How do I get enough money, enough weapons to keep going, to stay in power, to keep my country together, uh, to keep my allies inside Ukraine on side, to not have opposition that's threatening me inside Ukraine? I mean, this is, this is a very challenging situation for Zelensky. I, I think it would be very hard for him to spend a lot of time looking forward to 2025. Do you think that because we have a transition period and presumably we'll know who the winner is on election day or shortly after election day, and then there's like a couple of months, and if Trump is coming in or Biden is coming in, do you think there's an opportunity for resolution during that period before the uh, the second term is set? I think that the best hope is that you get the Ukrainians enough military support to last them through 2024. Biden has a shot at doing that with Congress. It's not easy, but it's possible. And then you work like hell with the allies to provide security guarantees for the remainder of Ukraine, bilateral guarantees from a bunch of allies, including the US. You try to get that done for the July NATO meeting in Washington, and then you give them a timeline, a time frame of when they'll be able to join NATO. It's not in 10 years, it's in like two or three. And you get all the countries to support it. And if you can do that, the uh, and there are risks around that. There are risks in terms of you know risking the status of NATO and needing to stay stand up for for the Ukrainians over time. And would the Americans really do that? And what happens if Trump wins? And all of that. But but that together with um, a Ukraine that has economic reforms and can join the European Union, they'll still be missing twenty percent of their territory, but they will have a better trajectory for the remainder of that territory than they ever would have had before the invasion, either in 2022 or in 2014. That can look like a, a long-term win for the Ukrainian people. I mean, it's hard to say win given all of the suffering and the war crimes and the deaths and the territory and everything else. So I use that term advisedly, but there is, there is still a way to resolve this more successfully for the West. I would not bet on it. I, I, right. It is. It is getting more challenging because look, we we've had good reason to kick the can down the road on this. We didn't want to force those conversations over the last year, year and a half because we didn't need to. It wasn't urgent. But now that it's urgent, the position is much harder. It's much more challenging. And it's what happens sometimes when you kick the can on tough conversations. Those conversations don't become easier. And that that's where we are with Ukraine. Here's my segue to the next one. Maybe we could have easier conversations if we enlisted AI. I think we should be enlisting AI. Yeah. <laughs> so you have his risk number four, and then I want to get to some of the things that are not on your list before we let you go. Ungoverned AI, ungoverned artificial intelligence. How does one govern it? 
One governs it um, by having uh, governments work together with uh, technology companies because the tech companies that control AI really have sovereignty over it. They're the ones that know how it works. Um, they're putting the platforms together. Uh, so it sounds very, that's very easily doable, right? Uh, yeah, it's really hard to do. Yeah, it's the Americans are closest to doing it. And doing it, of course, also means lowest common denominator because the tech companies are only willing to play ball on issues that they see as fully aligned with their business models. So you get good governance on some issues, but no governance on others. Um, the Europeans are taking a more maximalist position on governance, but they're not working with the tech companies. So harder to actually uh, implement and make effective. And the United Nations, uh, an initiative that I, I'm a I'm a part of um, and have the pen for, is uh, trying to create at least some ground truth, some you know some analytic agreement on what the nature of the challenges are between you know everybody involved in this process. So that that could be helpful. Before I let you go, I want to talk about some things that are not on the list. Yeah, sure. So climate not on the list. Some people it's might be surprised. Well, you we talk about El Nino; it's a part of climate. But you write in the report, quote, climate change has long been considered by many our greatest global challenge, but the world is on the road to responding collectively, even though too slowly, because everyone understands the nature of the problem. Is, is that true, Ian? Everyone understands? Why do we have this controversy on the right? And does Trump understand? And is he going to deal with the problem appropriately if he gets back in office to continue with the theme? We have uh, 190 plus countries in the world today that all accept that there are 442 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. They all accept that we have 1.2 degrees centigrade of warming. They all know how much deforestation has happened in different countries and different regions yes, of but countries do they, around but, the world. But, but, do, but do all the, the incoming and potential future leaders of some of the most important of those countries, including the United States, agree what needs to be done to maintain or lower those emissions. Uh, yeah, that doesn't mean they're willing to do it. But the fact that you have such an agreement and that there are trillions of dollars being spent on a transition from carbon energy to post-carbon energy, 90,000 people showing up at the COP summit in Abu Dhabi and moving every year more and more in that direction, it is too slow. And as a consequence, we will end up at 2 to 2.5 degrees of warming as opposed to 1.5, which is what everyone was saying they wanted to absolutely get to. And a lot more people will die and a lot more forced migration, a lot more problems with animal species and coral bleaching and the rest. So this is not a happy story, but we are on a pathway in the next two generations to have a world that is powered by post-carbon, decentralized, abundant energy. And that's a very exciting ultimate point that we are on a path. The world is on a path to moving towards. And my point on artificial intelligence is that we need to have that kind of a global conversation on AI as well, which is very challenging to do because it moves a lot faster. Ian Bremer, thanks again for being on the show. 13 is a charm, in fact. Treatly Preet. Great to see you, as always. Not in Yahoo. There you go. <laughs> Preet and Yahoo. It's ready to go. My conversation with Ian Bremer continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. In the bonus for insiders, we discuss the biggest red herrings of 2024, apparent risks that many fear, but that Ian thinks are overhyped. 
Most of the other elections happening in the world, not the U.S., are going to be stable. India, Modi's going to win easily. He gets to do more economic reform. Mexico, same thing with Claudia Scheinbaum, who AMLO wants to win. European Union, European Parliament, same thing. Indonesia, post-Jokowi, Prabowo, who he prefers likely to win. Those are big elections around the world. They're pretty stable. To try out the membership for just $1 for a month, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Before we wrap, I want to highlight something that came up on our show this week. On Stay Tuned in Brief, I spoke with Michael Gottlieb, who represented two Georgia election workers in their defamation suit against Rudy Giuliani for false statements he made in the aftermath of the 2020 election. As you may know, a D.C. jury ordered Giuliani to pay $148 million in damages. As we discussed, the mother-daughter plaintiffs, Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, are undoubtedly patriotic public servants. Elections would just not be possible without people like them. These two innocent election workers suffered severe harassment and abuse after Giuliani accused them of falsifying ballots, and their lives will never be the same again. The court's ruling is just the beginning of their journey to rebuild their lives. But something else was harmed, too, in the aftermath of the 2020 election. It has become increasingly difficult for election officials to recruit poll workers who are imperative to the functioning of democracy. According to Brookings, as many as one million everyday Americans volunteer as temporary poll workers in a federal general election. To be sure, this recruitment challenge existed before 2020. But the increase in harassment and even death threats, breaches of voting equipment, and violent interference with election results have made things much worse. Many previous poll workers just aren't returning to the job. And election officials are worried about their ability to staff up for this major election year. It may be hard to believe, but the presidential election is already upon us. The Republican presidential primaries kick off this month with the Iowa caucuses on January 15th and the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. Election officials are preparing for another challenging election with foreign, domestic, and technological threats. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't extremely worried about this election. Our democracy is at stake. Our country is at stake. And part of that worry is over these extreme and unjustified attacks on our election workers and on our democracy. So as we all gear up for this big year, I just want to commend election workers all over the country. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your service. And I do encourage those of you, if you are able, to consider doing this sort of noble work come election day. And if you're interested in hearing more about the plaintiffs in the Giuliani case, be sure to check out Monday's episode of Stay Tuned in Brief with Michael Gottlieb. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ian Bremmer. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. You can also now reach me on threads, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. 
or you can send an email to letters at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The editorial producers are David Kurlander and Noah Azulay. The technical director is David Tatashore. The audio producer is Nat Wiener. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, Jake Kaplan, and Claudia Hernandez. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.